As you're finding your spot there, Acts chapter 16, beginning with the 16th verse, I'd like to remind you that there really aren't any new religions. The ancient cults that people have been deceived by for thousands of years merely get recycled and repackaged for new generations. So ancient idolatry actually still exists today, just in a modern format. The age of reason has made many too sophisticated to believe in idolatry per se, but I'd like to offer a few examples of how many of the forms of ancient idolatry are still followed, with the end result being that many people are still enslaved by idolatry as they were thousands of years ago. For example, Baal was the god of thunder and rain. And what we have as the common thread here are many today who are devoted to a radical environmentalism that goes way beyond stewardship to being a fanatical belief and in fact a religion. The worship of Mother Earth being probably the most extreme form of it. There are those who in the ancient world worshiped the gods of Aphrodite and Apollo. They were viewed as being gods of fertility Today, we find that there are many who, while they wouldn't worship these gods by name, are just as devoted to the pornography and the sex industry as people were in uh, the ancient world. In the ancient world, there was worship of the god Molech, or Moloch, and that involved the sacrificing of children for uh, personal gain or per personal benefits. Today we find that children are sacrificed as well when they become inconvenient to an individual's goals of personal happiness or who are societally burdensome. In some societies they require after the birth of the first child that all others be aborted. And in some societies where individuals could have as many children as they want, people will abort them for their own individual reasons. Tell me if that is really any different than the ancient worship of Molech. In the ancient world, there was the worship of the god Nike. Yes, it was a god before it was an athletic shoe brand. Nike was viewed to be the god of speed, strength, and victory. And tell me, are there not many today, in fact millions, who worship sports and sports figures? There was Bacchus, the god of wine. That's probably pretty self-explanatory. Today, the alcohol industry is very much committed to that end, as any of the fanatical worship in the ancient world. There was Asclepius, the god of health and medicine. In fact, very near Ephesus, there was a healing center that was uh, dedicated to the god Asclepius. And there were some very strange, mystical things that happened around that, things that cannot be explained by merely physical explanations. There were supernatural things that were going on with all of this, some of which continue on. But there are some today who worship health and wellness and will do many things that are strange in their fanatical dedication to those things. And you may recall that even in the modern medical uh, symbolism, there is a snake that is wrapped around a staff. Well, in the, if that does go back to Moses holding up the serpent in the wilderness. But the perversion of it was to make a snake a part of the treatment in the ancient world. And that had no reference to what happened in the days of Moses. 
but in fact is a, actually a symbol for the devil and the occult. There's also Diana, who is the patron goddess of Ephesus. Now, she is a complicated figure in mythology or idolatry, but clearly commercial success had become a huge component of that racket. And ultimately, ultimately it seems that all of the gods were mostly perpetuated through the political and commercial complex, as kings and emperors wanted no true accountability to the one true God, and merchants wanted to keep the coins dropping into their tills as people visited those magnificent temples, which were built to beings that never existed. Now, I just gave you seven examples of how gods in the ancient world continue to be worshipped, but frankly, it's just under different names or under no name at all. It's the particular things that people want, that they make the source of their idolatry. And with that, I just want to say to you, while we're going to see idolatry in our passage today, there is also a great deal of the occult in our passage today. And those things have gone together through the centuries past. Today, they are still true. So with that, I want to direct your attention, please, to Acts chapter 16, beginning with the 16th verse. I'd like to preach a message today on spiritual warfare in evangelism. I'd like to remind you that if you want to wage war against the prince of the power of the air, against the enemy of our souls, there is no better way to do it than to be involved in personal evangelism. So I encourage you to that today. Beginning with the 16th verse, Scripture says, As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for several days, or many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Shall we pray? Lord, we come to you today in dependence that your spirit would have his way in our hearts and minds. Lord, we pray that your word would be lightened to us, that it would stand out, and Lord, that it would accomplish the thing whereto you have sent it. Lord, may your promises be fulfilled concerning the power of your word and the power of your spirit. And Lord, may you use this preacher this morning to simply rightly divide and proclaim. Give me boldness and love, <clears throat> and Lord, I pray that the truth would set us free. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you're taking notes this morning, I have two simple points that are easy to remember. I urge you to jot them down because I think they'll communicate what our passage is telling us well. At least I hope they will. And the first thing that we see here in our verses is that believers have authority over the enemy. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, I hope that gives you great joy and encouragement. Because many days it seems like the enemy gives you, a, gives you a pounding. But what we find here is that what was true for Paul and Silas is true for us as well. Believers do have authority over the enemy. 
And I'd like you to notice in verse 16 what the enemy tries to do. These are some of his tactics that are very insidious. We find in verse 16, it is actually in the process of the disciples simply trying to go and pray that they are intercepted and confronted by a girl who actually has a demonic spirit within her. It is as they are going to the place of prayer. Remember, this is where they had found Lydia and those women. And so they continue going to the riverside to pray. There is no synagogue there. They're just in the act of worship. And it is in that process that this girl comes to them. And it is clear that there is something going on that is supernatural. This is not just a normal teenage girl. This girl has a spirit of divination within her. The, interest, the, the words in the original are interesting. It's literally a spirit, comma, a python. You say, what? She had a snake? Well, here's where a little explanation might be helpful. In the ancient world, there were viewed to be, a, there was viewed to be places that people could go to receive spiritual uh, instruction. One of these places was the oracle at Delphi. And uh, the spirit that was there <clears throat> was called the oracle. And uh, it's in actually in Greek mythology that some of the figures went there, notably at times, to get instruction about what they were supposed to do. The spirit there was called a python. And so by extension over time, Anybody who had seemingly the ability to tell the future was said to have the spirit of a python or the spirit of that python. Now we're back into the language of snakes, aren't we? And there's very little deception that goes on here when it comes to the devil identifying who he is and what he has been up to for a long, long time. The serpent that deceived Eve back in the Garden of Eden is still alive and well and deceiving people through these spirits. And you'll see in the book of Revelation that there will come a time that a great angel is going to cast uh, the, the devil and Satan, that serpent he is called, and cast him into uh, the lake of fire. Okay, so we have it from Genesis to Revelation. Satan is identified with the snake. And you have it here again. Now, if you had the ability then to foretell the future in some way, they said that in the ancient world that you had the spirit of a python. And that's what's going on here. So our, our translations typically will have something like that to give you that idea. This is the effect of it, is that a person could divine the future. So I have it in my translation, a spirit of divination. You probably have something very similar to that. And that's what this girl did. Now tell me, if you had the actual ability to forecast the results of NFL games Sunday by Sunday, and you could forecast all 30 games with incredible accuracy, do you think there could be some money in it for you? We know there are people who are very skilled at guessing about it to where the odds are generally in their favor, and they make an awful lot of money. What if you could do it at the next level of accuracy? So I see, I hope you can see that this, this young girl here was a virtual gold mine, except she was not a free person. 
She was not free to do as she chose to do. In fact, she is called in our text a slave girl. Isn't that an interesting thing? Somebody who under Satan's power is able to tell the future and make tons of money is enslaved. And there are people who act as her slave owners. I find it interesting that Satan now is involved in the tactics of cooperation and confusion because this girl is the one who intercepts and confronts an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ and a missions team that have already seen a a tremendous work of God in the conversion of Lydia and her household. Remember that from last week? And now, as she comes to them, she follows them. Verse 17 and cries out. So they can't go around ministering the gospel door to door. They can't go into the marketplace. They can't go into households without this girl following behind them. And it seems like she has this mantra that she's calling out. And I want you to see the words. Verse 17, she says, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, how is Satan causing trouble here? You would look at that statement and analyze it for a moment. Is there anything untrue about what she said? Were these people servants of the Most High God? What do you think? Oh, yeah, no doubt about it. Were they involved in showing the way of salvation? Is that true? It is true, except there may be something kind of insidious here. I checked it in the original language, and it is literally a way of salvation, not the way of salvation. And that is sneaky, isn't it? Because it is true, but it's not all the truth. Because there aren't other ways of salvation. Mark it down that Satan will try to deceive people into thinking there are multiple ways of salvation, right? They think, they, Satan wants people to think that what you have from the Bible is no more true than what other people have from the Quran. It's no more true than what other people have by their tradition that's handed down from their forefathers of ancestral worship and salvation by good works and many other such things. He wants you to think that there are many, many pathways to God. All of them are equally legitimate. All of them are going to end up in people having eternal life. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Amen? It's a lie. There is one way of salvation. It is Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Notice the definite articles before each one of those things. The way, the truth, the life. No other way but him. She's saying these men are servants of the Most High God, which show unto us, literally, a way of salvation. Who is speaking here? Well, the voice is the girl, but the message is coming from a demon. Can demons tell the truth? (laughs) They do, but they have enough lie in it to undo the truth. I want you to notice something else. While the error is barely perceptible in what she is saying, there is far greater error in what she is doing. You say, what's she doing? She is co-opting what these missionaries are doing and trying to make it appear 
that their interests are ultimately compatible, that they are actually all on the same team. I think you, you and I can recognize that there are sometimes stronger messages given by what people do than by what people say. There is an implication of cooperation and fellowship here. Basically, she is walking behind the apostles as a megaphone of advertising, right? And she is suggesting to everybody that they are all together and on the same team. It is not outright opposition like they'd seen in Lystra, where they actually ended up stoning Paul and dragging him out of the city for dead. No, this is another one of Satan's tactics, which is very insidious and very successful oftentimes, to water down a message of truth with, by compromise. I think we saw it in the 50s when there was a well-known evangelist who was going around our, our country, and he was preaching a message that almost nobody could find any fault with. It was a gospel message, and many people came to Christ through it. Except as he was going around into cities, they had an effort to get every single church on board in welcoming him and with the ministers sitting on the platform together, including all sorts of Protestant ministers, all sorts of Catholic priests, many in between. The effort was given to show that there was total Christian unity behind this message. The problem was that many would come forward for salvation and then be counseled by a Catholic priest. And the cards that were given out for the converts to the, to the pastors and these churches were encouraging these people to go back to the same church where they were hearing error. And though they would make a profession of faith in the meetings, they would not be discipled on in the way of the Lord. They would continue to be taught error in their churches. You would know the name of the man if I said it. Probably many of you have guessed it already. But I want you to understand that while the message was good verbally, there was another message that was given that was very damaging. And the message was ecumenicalism and compromise. So Paul, is he going to put up with the message that's being given him by this demonized girl? These men are servants of the Most High God, which show us a way of salvation. The scripture says that it took many days, but Paul became greatly annoyed. Look on in the text. As she kept doing this for many days, and Paul, verse 18, having become greatly annoyed, interesting words here, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And... It came out that very hour. By the way, the words that very hour are a Greek, Greek way of saying immediately. It wasn't within 60 minutes. That's just a figure of speech. But it happened very, very quickly that that demonic spirit came out of this girl. Now, there is no indication that we have in the text that the girl became a believer in Jesus Christ. You might conclude that, but it never does say that. And there is no further record of her in the account that we have of what happened with the ministry in Philippi. It is simply a matter of stopping an opposition that Satan was giving to keep the gospel from going forward in this place. And in the providence of God, it was an action that also is going to unleash a series 
of consequences that are going to be very unpleasant initially for the missions team. Before we get into those, let me just simply point out to you that the power that you have that is exemplified here by Paul and Silas and this missionary team is available to every Christian here today. There was no standing that was special to the Apostle Paul that is not available to you as well as a born-again child of God. You are able also to have the authority of Jesus Christ in your life and ministry. You do not have to have an apostle nearby. You do not have to have a preacher nearby. You can have the authority. You have the authority through Jesus Christ. Say amen if you believe that. That means if you are experiencing some kind of devilish plan, some kind of demonic opposition, some spiritual troubling, some, some difficulty in your life that you know has a spiritual basis, I encourage you to call upon the authoritative, all-powerful name of Jesus Christ and command it to go away. You say, Pastor, that is awfully bold kind of behavior. I don't think I've ever done that before. I encourage you to do it. Take your position before the throne. Remember that our Savior said, all power is given unto me in heaven and on earth. That's all authority. That's what that word means. And then based upon that, he said, go ye therefore and teach all nations. That is, make disciples of all nations. You know the rest of that verse. But notice it is upon the basis of all authority. That is the basis upon which we evangelize. And I remind you, do not feel that you are a pawn or that you are a weak, uh, to be preyed upon individual, that Satan can do whatever he wants. No, no. You as a child of God are given that authority through Jesus Christ. Now notice it is through Jesus Christ. The apostles' words were, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. That is sub being submissive to his will, doing things according to his word. But in compatibility with what God's purposes are, this girl and this demon were standing in the way of gospel progress. They were communicating confusion and compromise. And that is why the apostle commands the demon to come out. So with that, let's move on to the second major point. Now, I, I, can't, I can't pass this up. Can I just remind you that the gospel gives dignity to those who are downtrodden? And by that I mean, here is a, a girl, a woman, if you will, in the ancient world. And it's long been the case that women have been mistreated in this world. You look around the world and you see places where women are degraded, downtrodden. And where, what's always true of those places? What's true is that the gospel is not believed there. You think of uh, tribal groups in Africa that count women as slightly more valuable than cows. No gospel there. You think about... Um, Muslim countries, where yes, they have the Quran, they claim to believe in Jesus, but how are women treated there? 
Boy, it, it's woeful, it is shameful how women are treated in Islam. And many other places as well. In China, women are treated very poorly. And other places around the world, I want to just say to American women, I think you all ought to thank God for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I know it's not all that it ought to be at all times in this country, but I want to remind you, the gospel elevates the place of women. And our Savior loves women. The church is a place where women can thrive. It's so mistaken in our country, the, the, the women's liberation movement of a generation ago. I think it was fueled largely by anger, uh, in some cases man-hatred, in some cases lesbianism. Not in all, but in some. And women were demanding true equality. I want to remind you, true liberation comes for women only through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The second thing, the gospel gives freedom to the enslaved. Yes, she is a girl, but she is a slave girl. Now, we have become very much guilty of tunnel vision in regard to slavery. In our country, you say slavery, everybody thinks racial slavery, right? But I want to remind you, there are lots of different kinds of slavery. There's not just racial slavery, there's economic slavery. There's also moral slavery. Have you ever considered that an awful lot of people in the porn industry are enslaved? A lot of people in the sex industry are enslaved. They used to call it white slavery, and that's, that's true. And it is a kind of slavery. Let's not forget that everybody who is a servant of sin is a slave of sin. That is the nature of sin. When we partake in it, when we choose to sin, we actually are choosing to come under the control of a slave, as a slave of a master. Let's not forget that the drug industry makes slaves, right? People who are absolutely shackled to it. Now, the Bible says that if the Son, therefore, shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. That's true freedom. It comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. It comes through the gospel. And let's also understand this. When we come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he does promise freedom from the slavery to sin. When we talk about being saved, we're not saying, I have a religious experience. We're saying, Jesus Christ set me free from sin. Sin's power and sin's penalty. I am free from that. I have a question for you. Is that true for you? You say, well, I give a salvation testimony. To what degree are you free from the things that you used to serve? Are you truly saved? Stop and think about that. Because that's what the Son came to do. Now, one thing that's interesting is that while it is the slave girl who stands up in our passage here today or stands out as being one who is under the power of the devil, would it be any less true to say that her masters were under the power of the devil? They were absolutely committed to making money by this girl. They had no interest in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in so much that it affected their financial interests, they were going to be uh, 
enemies of Paul and Silas as ministers of the gospel. Oh, listen, they were okay with these preachers walking through town, telling what they, whatever it was they wanted to say about Jesus and this strange version of Judaism that they'd never heard of before. Uh, yeah, if they want to do that through the streets of Philippi, fine, good, go ahead. But oh, when it affects their business interests, that's another thing, right? You can preach your gospel as long as it doesn't affect anybody. But when it starts affecting people, especially my business, that's another story. Look at verse 19. It says, but when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. Ah, the gospel witness exposes society's idols. Yeah, and the language here is pretty brutal. When you have words like dragged them into the marketplace, that means to do it forcibly. By the way, that's used in a positive way by the Lord Jesus in John 12, 32, when he says, and I, if I be lifted up, he said, I will draw all men unto myself. And I point that out to show you again the power of the gospel. If you will lift up the Lord Jesus Christ, as our Savior from sin and death and hell, then it will draw to forcibly drag people to the magnetic power of the cross. Amen? Amen. Well, they were dragging Paul and Silas now into the marketplace, it says, before the rulers, because there needs to be something in their minds to stop this at once. Verse 20, And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. You might underline those words, Jews, or maybe you have it in your text, being Jews. And this is nothing more than crass anti-Semitism. Their main charge against these preachers of the gospel is that they're Jews. What's the problem with them? Well, they're Jews. Shouldn't that mean something? And then the next verse, look at it. It says, and they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans. You might underline those words as well. To accept or practice. Oh, on the one hand, you have naked anti-Semitism. And on the other hand, you have a ridiculous and meaningless patriotism. <laughs> they were so proud in this Philippian Roman colony of their status as Romans that they said, look, they're trying to get us to do things that are unlawful, and they're Jews. This is evidence. Is this a basis for prosecution? Unfortunately, throughout much of the history of the world, it has served effectively. How many times have we seen demagogues say, say things against people and say, why? And the worst of it all is it's it's un-American, <laughs> which can mean anything you want it to mean, right? Wait a minute. I'm thankful to be an American. In some cases, I'm proud to be an American. But let's also understand there are things that our country does that are not things to be proud about as well. In other words, be careful of a pride that's unfounded. 
And this pride of patriotism and nationalism is simply, uh, it's a cloak. Tell me, friends, what was their real interest here? Was it about national pride? What was their real interest? If you said money, you're exactly right. That's what it is. It's the money. It's not the nationality. And so the charges, were they accurate? No, they were false charges. And by the way, since we're on the point, was there anything wrong with being a Jew in ancient Rome? No, it was a legal religion according to the law. Second question, was there anything wrong with a Roman becoming a Christian? Does anybody remember Cornelius in Acts chapter 10? Was there anything illegal about his conversion to Christianity and so many along with him? No, there was nothing wrong with that. There is nothing wrong at all. But they knew what to say. And this gospel witness revealed their society's prejudices. Third thing I want you to observe is that gospel witnesses may suffer as our Savior did. We start moving more quickly here through the text to notice the series of events that happened as punishment is brought down upon these humble servants of Jesus Christ, which are going to mark them as being authentic servants of the Lord because they're going to suffer in just the way their Savior did. Notice in verse 22, it says, Then the crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore their garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. Okay, so we've got the crowd. They're all getting worked up into a lather. The magistrates are the actual rulers there in that locality over Philippi. And they are now giving orders for their beating. Now, the people who would do this were called lictors. And they were the equivalent in the ancient world of police. They were the ones who were tasked with enforcing the law as it was given out. And these were the ones then who would inflict the beatings. And they would beat a person with rods. And these were not whips. These were actual bludgeons. These were almost clubs. They were sticks. In fact, this was given as a symbol of the authority of Rome. The fasces, the bundle of sticks together, was, is what it was called. You get our word fascism, by the way, from that word. And so the lictors had the ability, under the law, the authority to take these and beat whomever it was who was deemed worthy of it according to the law. And they would beat them in front of the place called the bima, or the judgment seat. You say, well, good thing it was only 39 lashes they could get. Uh, don't confuse Jewish law with Roman law. Remember in the Old Testament, it was actually a humane thing that the Lord said that the maximum number of stripes or lashes that could be administered to a person in case of punishment was 40, 4-0. But the Jews, in their carefulness not to break the law by miscounting and giving one too many, would even back off one from that and give 39. You look at Paul when he describes how many times he had been lashed by the Jews. He said, five times I've received of the Jews 40 stripes save one. So 39, time, 39 lashes. You say, well, wow, I'm glad that's all they got here. No, this was not a Jewish beating. They are in Philippi. This is a Roman colony. This is a totally Roman thing going on. You say, well, when... 
How did they figure out when to stop? They stopped when they felt like it. And that could be short or it could be very long. You say, what is the evidence here of how much they got beaten? Look on in the text. Verse 23, it says, And when they had inflicted many blows on them, Luke stopped counting. And the effect was to beat these men into pulps to give them a message that they would never ever forget you don't come into Philippi and stir up our city with your strange doctrines you Jews get it that's the effect of all of this now you go on into the text you see a further treatment of them they were it was unjust it was they were treated as unpopular it was immodest. They had torn their clothes off of them. It was brutal. And then last thing, it was excessive because it says, verse 23, they threw them into the prison. That is a literal word there, to throw. It has the idea of not gracefully, not humanely, not gently for sure, but to throw them into the prison. And then the orders were for the jailer, who is an interesting fellow, who will come up later in the text as a very important person. But he was not a low-ranking person. He had a very important job. He lived either in the jail or right next to the jail. He had some position and bearing as an officer of the court. He was ordered to keep them safely, literally to guard them securely. And verse 24, having received this order or such an order, in other words, this is not the usual order that was given for somebody that was committed to his care in prison. These were not ordinary prisoners, but this was like a maximum security kind of situation. We don't want these guys getting out. Get it? He thought, well, I'm going to do the, the ultimate thing I can do with people who are a real problem to society. The scripture says in verse 24, having received this order, he put them into the inner prison. This would be the deepest, darkest place in the prison. This is the maximum security cell. And that should have been enough to keep anybody out of trouble, right? He was not content with that. The order was given in such a way he thought, not only am I going to make sure that they are held very securely and have no contact behind this door, uh, this, this cell door with other people. There was no ventilation in this inner prison, by the way. The only air they got came around that doorway. So you want to talk about a stench that gets raised very quickly? This was a not a pleasant place to be. Not only that, he fastens them in stocks. Their feet go in stocks. You say, what does that mean? It's a very specific Greek word that describes somebody having their legs spread as wide as they can be spread and put in stocks. Literally, the word is wood. So you are stretched to the maximum, okay? Like doing splits. And you cannot move. Once they take these two large logs with cutouts and put them together and then put the chain and the lock on them, that's the way you're going to be until they decide otherwise about you. This is not just securing them. This is punishing them. This is truly 
an unjust and brutal and excessive measure. And how will you sleep that night if you've just been treated like that? You've just been beaten with rods until the lictors have decided that they're done with you. Maybe from some shred of humanity that they have left in their souls. They've allowed you to live through the beating and now you're down there in maximum security with your feet in stocks. I would think maybe we would consider this as going to go down in the journal if they live as the worst night of their lives. <laughs> Wouldn't you say that has the makings for that? And what are you gonna do in pain and shame? This is act two of a three-act drama in Acts chapter 16. And I want to tell you, it's going to end like you might never guess. <laughs> it's going to end on a note of victory that we would not suspect. But I just want, need to stop here today and remind you, as Christians, you have the authority through Jesus Christ over occultic power. And I want to remind you in the second place, it is a privilege and an honor to suffer as Jesus Christ. We mentioned that they suffered unjustly. Didn't our Savior suffer unjustly? What did he ever say that was untrue? When they came to try to find witnesses for things that he'd said that were illegal or unlawful, there was not a thing they could find. The best they could come up with was he said that he was the son of God or he made this claim about destroying the temple and raising up in three days. You can't say that about the temple. He was speaking of the temple of his body, right? You want to talk about unjust. Our Savior's trial, the charges that were brought about him were so unjust. Immodesty, they had their clothes torn off of them, yeah. That's exactly how our Savior died on the cross. I know you've seen pictures, and he usually has something on, but the reality is he didn't. The pure and altogether lovely one was hung in shame for us. He was brut br brutally beaten, just like these apostles were. And was it excessive? Absolutely, it was excessive. Crucifixion was the treatment for those who were enemies of the state, who were the worst kinds of individuals, who were determined to make examples of them before everybody else. Don't you dare do this, or this is what's going to happen to you. And who was being made the example? A gentle teacher from Galilee? A rabbi? A healer? The Son of God? What's the message? If that wasn't brutal, if that wasn't excessive, then nothing is. I just want to remind you that if you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ and share the gospel, you will be treated in similar ways. And if that happens, do like Paul and Silas do. They're going to thank God that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of of Christ. I close with that today and I want to encourage you to go before the Lord and thank him 
if uh, you are a born-again child of God, for the authority that you have. And then ask him for courage to continue serving him regardless of what the reaction of people is. If they don't like it, if they persecute you for it, thank God that people think enough of you to treat you like they did Jesus Christ. We quietly stand to our feet for prayer.